What's the greatest Christmas carol that's ever been written? Now, everybody has a different opinion about that. And I would suggest that everybody's opinion has a, has a level of validity to it. But can I suggest that the greatest Christmas carol wasn't written by Irving Berlin? It's not White Christmas. It's not Oh Holy Night. It's not the little drummer boy. It's not Mary's boy child. It's not old little town of Bethlehem. And it's not even Silent Night. Audible gasps from the crowd. I'm going to suggest, actually, that the greatest Christmas carol was written about 2,000 years ago by a teenage, pregnant Jewish girl named Mary. And the tune is not very catchy, but the lyrics never been. She's sitting around with her cousin, Elizabeth. Elizabeth is pregnant as well. And I'm guessing that they're enjoying Royaboo's latte tea together, which I've been told is the in drink for all the pregnant women now. And uh, apparently Aaron Moore, whenever he goes to Starbucks, that's what he gets. And uh, she's sitting there, and the scripture often references this, she's pondering, it says. If you read the stories surrounding her, she's often pondering what God is doing. And she's talking with Elizabeth about this, and she's with her for about three months during their mutual pregnancies. And in response to being overwhelmed by the blessing of what God is doing in her life, she writes what some people would call the Magnificat. And it's a song which is all about the God who gives hope to the hopeless. And we've been talking all through the month of December about this idea of what child is this. And in response to what child is this, we're going to read the Magnificat together. And so if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. And uh, Luke is the third book there in the New Testament. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 46. As Mary answers this question, what child is this? And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham 
and his descendants forever, even as he had said to our fathers. This is the first, and I would argue, the best Christmas carol that's ever been composed. And it's interesting what she's talking about, in particular as she's talking about how the Lord Jesus with whom she is pregnant has come and will be coming. And the things that he's going to be doing, the things that she is celebrating in this passage. And one of the things it says in verse 52 is, is that this coming Christ child, this Messiah, will bring down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. When Mary sang this song, everybody knew who the king was. The king was a guy named Herod. And we can get quite a bit of information about this guy by reading someone called Josephus. Josephus was a Jewish historian who lived around the time of these things unfolding. And he writes about what Herod was all about. And Herod was called Herod the Great primarily because, not for good reasons, but because he undertook building projects that were impossible. He was such a jerk that when he would see something and he would talk about constructing something, he would be told by all the experts, that's impossible. And then he would say, well, if it's impossible, that's exactly what I want done. I don't care how many lives it costs. I don't care how much it costs to have it done. I want it done. He was such a hated ruler that he had to build little fortresses all around Israel because he wanted a place to run and hide in case someone tried to assassinate him. And so you've heard of some of the places he's built. For example, there's Masada. He built a, 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 a fortress on top of this mountain out in the desert. He built, and you're seeing pictures of it now. The second picture is a picture of what's called the mini Masada or the Herodian, which is just outside of of Jerusalem, and it's very interesting because he, he said, I want a, another fortress built here outside Jerusalem, and he said, I want it built right here. And they said, well, we can't build it here because we have to build a fortress in an ele on an elevated thing. And he says, no problem, just move that mountain from over here to where I want it built. And so he had thousands and thousands of slaves come and by hand move it rock by rock from one hill to the other. And he had it built. At the base of the Herodian, there's an Olympic-sized swimming pool in case he wanted to go swimming. And, and I've been there. There's no water. I don't know where they got the water from, but a line of slaves would carry the water by hand, filling that pool up at the base of the mini Masada in case Herod wanted to go swimming. On the coast in the Mediterranean, there's a place called Caesarea Maritima, and he held built there what some people would call Vegas on the Med, a spectacular facility, but very hedonistic. And if you were to walk around the grounds there, you see all of the things that he had built there. He was given the title King of the Jews 30 years earlier than the time this passage was written by the Roman Senate. And he fought for that title. He knew how to get what he wanted in life. He knew how to get power. 
He had hitched his wagon to Julius Caesar in Rome, but when Julius Caesar was assassinated, he befriends Mark Antony. But when Caesar Augustus took care of Mark Antony, he had orchestrated things and constructed things in such a way that it looked like he'd been Caesar Augustus' friend all along. He was smart. He knew how the world worked. Josephus says that he was married to 10 different women over the course of his lifetime. He had 43 children. Most of his marriages were politically motivated in order to gain power and maintain power. The only wife, Josephus says, that he actually quote-unquote loved was a woman named Miriam. And he was very obsessive about her and didn't actually, even though he said he loved her, he didn't trust her. In fact, he had her executed because he thought she might be making a move against him. He didn't trust Miriam's mother either because she thought Miriam's going to have been talking to his mother, her mother, and so she, he had Miriam's mother's head cut off. Miriam had two brothers, and he thought that those guys might be plotting against him, so he had both of them killed. And he knew that these two guys got their hair cut by a certain barber, and they thought, he probably, you know how people talk to their barber or their hairdresser when they're getting their hair done? He thought probably he'd been talk, they'd been talking to the barber, so he had him killed as well. When he was on his deathbed, five days before he was about to die, he thought one of his sons was quite ambitious, and so he had him executed five days before he died because he didn't want to be overthrown in the last days of his reign. He was known for his cruelty. He was hated basically universally by the people in Israel. And he built these spectacular buildings on the backs of the poor and the downtrodden. When he was dying, he knew that there would be a party in Israel the day he died. There'd be huge celebrations. And so Josephus says he took 70 of the leading citizens in the nation of Israel. And he had them imprisoned in what's called the Hippodrome in Jericho. And he had in left instructions that on the day he died, he knew the crowds would be out celebrating. And so he had all 70 of these people executed on the day he died. So he said, I want there to be mourning on the day that I die, not celebrating. This is the kind of guy he was. This was Herod the Great, king of the Jews. And he knew how the world worked. He knew what counted, and he knew how to keep power. He knew how to outmaneuver, outwit, and outlast everyone. And one day, some strangers came to Jerusalem as he was in residence at his summer palace. Some scholars, as we heard in the video earlier, or magi, or wise men. And we're told in Matthew chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, they came to him and said, where is the one who was born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And it says in verse 3 that Herod, uh, always the political operator, remained calm and said, well, you know, I'd I'd like to worship him too. Tell me where he is. But it also says in verse 3 that he was discouraged. 
and that all of Jerusalem was disturbed with him. You see, the thing is, based on his track record, when Herod gets disturbed, people die. And so all of Jerusalem was disturbed because all of Jerusalem was afraid. And this is part of the reason that Mary sang about the coming Messiah, the coming Christ child. In verse 52 and 53, she says, He, meaning Jesus, has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. Nobody puts that kind of stuff on Christmas cards. You don't hear Bing Crosby singing songs about sending the rich away empty. It's interesting that in the Christmas carol, O Little Town of Bethlehem, it says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. See, here's the truth. Mary had a tremendous amount of hope, and Herod had a tremendous amount of fear. That's what we see in this song. Mary had a tremendous amount of hope in the God of hope, and Herod had a tremendous amount of fear. And the reason Mary had this great hope is because the coming king, King Jesus, is literally the foundation of hope. And when we talk about what child is this, Mary recognized that the coming king, that God had supernaturally impregnated her with, was the king of hope. For Herod, King Jesus was someone to fear. For Herod, what child is this was someone who was to be prevented at all costs. And so we see the pattern of Mary's song, which tells us so much about her, if you study the song. King Jesus will bring down the rulers, he will lift up the hungry and the humble, he will fill the hungry and send the rich away. And these ideas are part of a theme in Scripture that we see all through Scripture, that some people have called, not original with me, the great reversal. The great reversal. When we think about what child is this, Mary recognized in Jesus the great reversal. The scripture says that Mary's song basically says the world, the way it's currently structured, gets it exactly wrong. Exactly wrong. Couldn't be more wrong. See, the world would say that the ones who are blessed in our society are the beautiful, the rich, the successful. The world would say blessed are those who climb the ladder on the backs of the downtrodden. Mary's song, which tells us so much about her, says King Jesus is coming. And he is the basis of the great reversal. Blessed are the poor, he'll say later when he's speaking. Blessed are the poor, blessed are the hungry. Now her song, just listen to me carefully here. It's not saying that the poor are all going to heaven and the rich are not going to heaven. She's not saying that. She's saying, if you study it carefully, that God will not tolerate on a permanent basis injustice and greed, such as was done by Herod. That God is a God of righteous anger against those who selfishly and violently oppose the hungry. 
and oppress the hungry, the illiterate and the poor. And that he is doing something about that, and it all begins, and Mary understands this, even though she's an uneducated, young, very poor teenage girl, she understands the most important things, the most profound things in the world, that with the becoming of King Jesus, God has started to do something about all of the ways the world gets it wrong. And she understands, as we read this story, this song, when Jesus comes into her life, he changes that life. And he encourages us to care about the poor, to care about the hurting. And Mary is saying, what, ch what child is this? This child is King Jesus, who overthrows Herod and those like him, not using Herod's methods, of execution and deceit and outmaneuvering people. No, King Jesus defeats King Herod's capacity to hate with his greater capacity to suffer and to love. You know, Christianity, I heard this said a couple weeks ago. I'd never heard it quite said this way. It's very interesting. Christianity is the only religion that has a God that suffers for you. Think about that. Christianity is the only religion that has a God that suffers for you. And so King Jesus defeats Herod and those like him with their capacity to hate. King Jesus defeats them with his greater capacity to suffer and to love. What child is this? Jesus says, put it all on me. And Mary sees this. She's pondered this. Put it all on me. And Jesus will defeat Herod's pride with humility. And King Jesus will defeat Herod's cruelty with love. And this is King Jesus. This is the child. And so Jesus comes and he suffers and he dies to overcome sin so that rich people can be saved and transformed. So that poor people who choose to can be saved and changed. And it's really called Mary's song, but it's really not about Mary, even though it tells us quite a bit about her. And it's interesting because, you know, if you listen to the playlists on the radios and different things like that at Christmas, they, 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 they purport to be expressing the, the, the meaning behind the season. And so sometimes the songs are about celebration and sometimes they're about family. And those are okay things. But for the most part, they're about sort of selfish things. About me or about you. And even though it's called Mary's song, it's really not about Mary. Even though it tells us about and she says in the opening verses, My soul praises the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. In the video we saw earlier, we talked, she talked about being thirsty. She talked about her thirst being quenched in this child that she was carrying in her womb. And some people have mistakenly 
and erroneously taught that marriage was sinless. This is, of course, contrary to Scripture. And you notice right in her theological treatise here in this song, she says, my soul rejoices in God, my Savior. Because Mary pondered these things as a young teenage girl. She recognized these profound things. I am a sinful person in need of a Savior. And God has sent King Jesus to address that. And so you understand that she's not rejoicing here because God has given her a problem-free life. She's not rejoicing because it's a nice time of year. And if you know anything about her life, you know the level of sacrifice this young woman entertained is staggering. When God said, I want to do this through you, she says, let it be to your servant as you desire, even though it should and probably will cost me everything in life. Absolutely everything. In fact, she probably was more than prepared to die for what God was asking her to do because that could certainly be the end result. Now she's rejoicing here because she has a big God who has not only forgiven her sin based on what King Jesus has come on mission to do. And she knows she's going to face all kinds of problems. She's going to lose all her status. She's going to lose all her resources. People will want to kill her because of what they assumed she has done, even though it's not true. And this is why she says in her song, God notices my humble condition. But she's not about magnifying her problems. She's not about exalting herself. She's all about exalting and magnifying God. And I'm deeply intrigued by the illustration of this young woman's life. It makes me sit down and think, what kind of things do people assume about God when they observe my life? You know, there's a book called Unchristians. And it's a research-based book. And in the research-based book, they were checking in with numerous people, unchurched, pre-churched people. And one of the things they noted was that 84% of the population outside of the church claims to know someone who claims to be a Christian. But in only 15% of the cases do these pre-Christians, unchurched people, suggest they notice something fundamentally different about those lives of those people that claim to be Christians. Only 15%. What do people say about God when they observe the life of Scott? And as you often hear my, me say, our job is not some moral self-improvement project. It's not about some list of do's and don'ts. If that's what we think it is, we don't really get it. No, our job, like Mary, who illustrates it for us here, is to magnify God in the way we do life and allow him to do within us the great reversal. And so what I want to do as we conclude here 
is I want to give you a chance, and me too, to do something like Mary has done. We're going to pray together. And we're going to pray a type of Mary's song. So what I want you to do first is use your imagination with me for a moment. And I want you to record in your mind just one word answers to two questions I'm going to give you. And then we're going to give you the answer at the end. And so the, just, just in one word, just in one word, answer the first question or in a series of one word images. And so the first question is, um, what, am the, what are the problems that I'm facing? Because Mary, remember, Mary was facing some massive problems. But what are the problems, even though our problems pale in comparison to hers, what are the problems that you or I are facing in one word answer. So you might just use the word job and you know the backstory. But what are the one word answers to that question of the problems you are facing? So just give you a minute to think about that. Because God has the capacity to read our mind and knows what we're thinking, he sees those answers. And he knows what's going on in your life. And he sees your concerns. Now, second question, just remember those things. Second question is, write down your concerns for our world, for the things going on around us for our world. And so it might be just something as simple as, the word neighbor. And what I mean by that is my neighbor who doesn't know Jesus and who I desperately would love to see come to Christ. So what are your concerns for your world? I'll give you a minute. So you have those word pictures in your mind. And I want you to be reminded that we're looking at this idea of what child is this. And so after all those little one word pictures, in big bold letters, I want you to write in your mind the letters King Jesus. King Jesus. This is what Mary did. Even though she was facing stuff that would boggle our minds, she writes King Jesus. And then what I want us to do is to pray a version of Mary's song together. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to ask them to put, it's two slides long, I'm going to put them up and give you a chance to read them both so you know what you're about to pray. And then if you're comfortable praying these things, We'll pray them together. So take a moment to read a new song.
okay if you're willing and open to praying this because you mean it. Let's pray this together out loud. God, we rejoice, not because these problems are so small, but because we know you are mindful of us. You care, and in Christ, you are turning things around. We rejoice in you. We magnify you. We praise you. Continue the work of the great reversal in us. In King Jesus' name, amen. stand together this morning and spend some time in response to the gift that you've been given. <laughs> 